0: Sometimes evil seems to win. We continue our Easter-themed series on finding hope in uncertain times, building on 1 Peter, where he says, in his great mercy, God's great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So we've just watched a clip from uh, the first of the Lord of the Rings movies, The Fellowship of the Ring. And uh, and seen towards the climax of that movie, uh, Gandalf apparently losing the fight with evil and darkness. Sometimes evil and death take from us those we most trusted, we most admired, in whom our hopes rested. And in the movie clip, we discover a story formed in the imagination of J.R.R. Tolkien. And it's a Christian imagination. He actually was quite influential as a Christian friend of in, in the journey of C.S. Lewis coming to faith. Some of us know him as an author. And he is the leader and mentor of a disparate group of hobbits and dwarves and elves and the inhabitants of Middle Earth, as we all know. And they just seem to be achieving one of their main objectives, which is retrieving uh, this very powerful ring that can be used to either cause evil or defeat. When evil retaliates and snatches away their leader and the group, this fellowship of the ring actually in Tolkien's imagination, has encapsulated a number of like messianic attributes. Uh, but unlike Jesus, the whole group has to do it. They, they're incomplete in themselves. So they bring a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And so the innocent hobbits must find courage. And the resourceful and independent dwarves must learn trust and community. And the humans must shake off their complacency And stop retreating to comfort uh, in order to actually find real safety. And as Gandalf is taken, their, their grief, their loss is palpable. And they literally just collapse feeling hopeless. Now, we're building on an Easter theme. This is, as it were, Tolkien's Easter moment in the story Um, But unlike the Fellowship of the Rings, the disciples had no quest without their leader. They understood that with Jesus, meaning uh, the disciples understood that with Jesus dead, his message and his mission die with him. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. They understood that with Jesus dead, Nothing made sense. It wasn't as if he'd given them this amazing life that they could run with after that moment. And of course, unlike the parallel scene from Christian history, the death, uh, you know, uh, Gandalf's death is heroic. Jesus' death appears humiliating. (laughs) Jesus doesn't seem to fight or do battle. Except maybe in prayer, except maybe with his own distress at what it will cost him. He offers no defense when he's accused. He doesn't answer back when evil is coming at him. Instead, he's, he goes through a rigged trial and is led like a lamb to the slaughter. Mocked, beaten, lashed 39 times. The flogging alone could be fatal. Too weak to carry his cross he's then pierced with nails and fastened to the cross beam and the vertical beam. And there he hung, betrayed, deserted, naked, and ashamed. To the delight of his enemies, the disgust of those who wanted deliverance from Rome, and the deep, deep distress of those who loved him and had followed him. Even his own words seemed so confusing. One moment promising paradise. Is this just an escape from the world? One moment seemingly asking God why he'd been forsaken and then gathering his strength and saying as loudly as he could, It's finished, it's over. Or was it? But the scene didn't appear terribly like the stuff of victories. Now, one of our favorite responses, of course, is to say, Yes, but that was Friday. You know, Friday's the defeat, Sunday's coming. Well, I beg to differ. Uh,. Friday is a really important day, and I totally get it that people thought that Friday was a defeat, and Sunday's coming, but the apostolic witness never sees Friday as a defeat. The cross itself is the victory of God, and Easter is simply that, and so I want to press into this as we look at finding hope in uncertain times like what is it in the easter story that we can actually drill into when evil seems to win what is it that we're supposed to take with us going forward and even as we face our like everyday realities everyday realities in which you know since i announced this we've we've watched the tabu besta scenario unfold and 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 the extent of state compromise and collapse and the uncertainty. You know it's it's no longer just financial, even the very fabric of our safety and security apparatus seemingly uncertain. How do I respond? How do you respond? Do we just chuck it all in? Do we want to run and hide? How how do we engage? see the apostolic witness itself is that the cross has won the victory the cross itself contains god's power it wasn't friday was a defeat and sunday was like well that was just round one now we're in round two and you know i was losing on points but then i got a knockout jesus was not losing on the cross jesus was winning on the cross he was doing something on the cross that, ma- that was his victory. And that's the apostolic witness. The cross itself is where evil is defeated. And we read in, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 that that's where Jesus humiliated the powers that try of evil that tried to run the world and displace him. And so the cross gives me my sermon title, which is why evil can never win don 't think I even put it up yet, so turn with me to one Peter chapter two, and uh, we 're going to pick up it, it comes just after those beautiful words you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood a holy nation, people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Notice Peter as a joy uh, as a Jew writing to gentiles, says you 're the chosen people now this isn 't some people call it replacement theology, it's inclusion theology. It's literally together we become something brand new in God. But this was radical for a Jewish man to write to Gentiles You're chosen, you're royal, you're priests. I mean, even the average Jew couldn't say that. They had to be of the Levite class and of the sort of like line of, you know, certain lines within the Levitical uh, tribe. So now he writes and he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your souls. So he has a war going on. Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here's the strategy. Here's how you're going to fight. Here's how you're going to live such good lives. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor as supreme authority or the governors who sent by him to punish those who do wrong, commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good. Here's the strategy. You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I want you to live as... Free people, but never use your freedom as a cover-up, as a smokescreen for evil. Live as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Keep honoring the emperor. Now, he's going to speak very specifically how the cross applies to two people who were in very, two groups of people that were in very disadvantaged circumstances within the wider roman empire the one is slaves people whose bodies are literally bought and sold and owned but these slaves have come to faith and he's going to coach them in what the cross means for them and then he's going to apply the same logic to women who in a sense in the patriarchal society of the day are owned by their husbands but these husbands don't follow christ so, again, they're trying to follow Jesus, and they're facing this incredibly difficult patriarchal power that's been put on them by the expectations of the day. And he's going to coach them in how do you respond in that kind of environment. Slaves, in reverent fear. So, you, you notice he's saying, you all living as free people. You're all chosen people. You're all royal priesthood. You've got this new identity. But he recognizes their worldly situation really sucks. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they carry a consciousness of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure that? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So as he was crucified, he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and to the overseer of your souls. So Peter's writing to these chosen, royal, holy, belonging to God people that his main target uh, readers were in the province of uh, modern-day Turkey. And living in their homes and towns, as they'd begun to follow Jesus, they'd started seeing themselves as like deeply, deeply different. They they started feeling like they didn't belong. They started feeling like they were foreigners in their own world. Something began to detach from their ability to keep identifying with everything that was going on around them. And so he describes them as, you're feeling strange. You're like a foreigner. You're like an outsider. You're like... An exile, your home is somewhere else. And in fact, it's their very holiness that makes them this new nation, growing in the face of oppression, opposition, suffering and persecution. And so there's this collision between this new people emerging and the power of empire that's all around them, and all the stuff that's going on. And how are these believers meant to hold their earthly citizenship with their new nation status? You know, they're earthly citizens, they're in this place, it's got all its issues, and it's certainly full of very dodgy, selfish, cruel, narcissistic leaders. And he's going to give them like really radical advice, but he says this, I want you to wage war on all sin, verse 11, you're like going to war. Like, wherever you find evil and wrong and sin, you're going to war. The second thing is, I want you to choose goodness. You're going to live such good lives. Like, this is how you conduct yourself in this chaos space. Thirdly, for the Lord's sake, whenever possible, and Peter himself would say, we must obey God and not men when confronted by authority. So, whenever possible, submit yourselves. And this will silence ignorant people who accuse us of treason, basically. The church was at risk uh, at that time. And then verse 17, I'm jumping a little bit, is just pure genius. Um, he, he says this, Honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, keep honoring the emperor. Now some of you, it's, it's, it's sort of like got in your translation it says, Respect everyone. No, no, no. The word honor is repeated. So it's a chiastic structure. In other words, it's like little echoes in the, in, the, in the verse, and the verse starts with honor and it ends with honor, and it's got two punch lines in the middle. And the main points are actually in the middle, which is um, you're going to love everyone and fear God, but then there's this bracketing of honor every single person and honor Caesar, but you're going to love God. I mean, you're going to have your highest loyalty for God. So how d- in this? He's treating everyone like royalty. He's, he's putting the same word where you respond to Caesar. You're supposed to, And they were supposed to honor Caesar, and that was a command. In fact, they were supposed to worship Caesar. But if you, weren't to, if you were a Jew or you followed the Jewish faith, then you would not be persecuted. So Jews had an exemption to honor the emperor and not worship him. So Christians piggybacked on that law inside the culture of the day. And so they honored the emperor, but they didn't worship him. But now he says, and this is the genius of it, honor everyone. Like, treat every person as though they are royalty, as though they were the emperor. Every single person you meet made in the image of God, you're going to treat so well. Now, How can that be wrong? It's so clever. You treat everyone as though they were royalty, everyone as though they're a king. The lowest slave gets as much honor as Caesar. But in doing this, of course, he not only honors everyone, but he humanizes Caesar. Caesar gets what is due to everyone. Of course Caesar gets honor of course Caesar gets loved and respected why because he's made in the image of God he's not God but he's he's going to be treated as of infinite value why because that's how I treat everyone see how clever this is not breaking the law you're simply raising everyone to the level of the highest law does that make sense and in saying do he's inhumanizing the oppressor there's this subvertive power because the oppressors understand the use of bitterness and hate and how to alienate people. So why don't you blow them away with love and honor? And then he avoids the charge of treason um, and changes the way Christians bring change. In other words, when we are going to face a situation of uncertainty and difficulty and hardship, there's a particular way I want you to bring change. And, and he goes on to talk to slaves, and later he will talk to the wives of unbelievers. And it does feel very counterintuitive. This is, like, deeply counterintuitive. Um, and if you just first read this and you're not looking at his logic, you're actually thinking he's using the gospel to, like, legitimize unfairness and oppression and all the horrible stuff that empire was doing. And he's using religion as dope as the opiate of the masses, a la Marx, um, to just dumb down people's response. But that's a very superficial reading, and I want to take us a little bit deeper. So there's at least three things going on uh, as he speaks about The first is Peter explains... That on the cross, Jesus identifies with those slaves, with those wives, with those people, and he became just like you on the cross. And he suffered just as much injustice and difficulty and hardship as you did. And we discover the crucified God, that God himself is on the side of those who suffer and are oppressed. He's not distant from suffering. In fact, he comes along to identify with those who suffer, he comes to share in it with them. We are called to do the same, he explains in the passage. He's an example for you. Secondly, the cross, and, and you know, this is where most of our hymns and worship songs go, and it's completely true and right. The cross is about substitutionary atonement in which Jesus takes our place to pay the price for our sin. That's what that phrase means. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. I mean, that's just like three little, three letters in the English, you know. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Like, it's not hard to remember, but it's, it's totally worth living by. It's a profound statement. So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Notice that being able to live for righteousness is the sign of your healing. Not just forgiveness, but the fact that you now die to sin and live for righteousness. That's your real healing. We often think of it as just, and of course there's physical healing. Jesus did physical healing. But the real healing is freedom from the evil that would control us. As I live for righteousness. So Jesus atones for sin. Being an authentic substitute, you know, he's not a... Under-18-year-old playing in the under-11s. He literally becomes like us to take our place. And we are forgiven by trusting him and him alone for what he has done on the cross. Nobody, nobody, nobody else could have paid for our sin. And we absolutely have to reach the point of trusting him and not ourselves. We've got to renounce all the pride that says, I'll pay you back, God. reach the point of complete dependence upon Jesus Christ. Justice has been done. Jesus paid for sin. So as you look at these two options, sometimes, you know, identification with suffering, there's a whole schools, complete schools of theology that insist that's all it's about. And then there's others who set this as in opposition. They're both true. They're both in this one text, and they're all over the Bible. But actually, that's not even the main point of the text. The text reveals the power by which Jesus changes the world. So imagine for a moment with me, a large wetland up on a mountain plateau. And a storm breaks, a huge flash flood breaks up even higher in the plateau, I mean in the mountains. And rocks get torn loose and trees come down and dirt and muck and debris and everything comes rushing down the canyons and into this wetland. And the water level in the wetland rises, but the rocks stop and the trees reach the end. And even the finest dirt just disperses into the wetland. And slowly all the impurity. Just drop into the bottom of the wetland, and the only thing that passes out of the wetland is clean water. Now, that's the kind of image that's going on here. In his body, he takes our sin. On the cross, Jesus takes into himself a flood in his body of sin, oppression, violence, and hate. The Bible explicitly names several forms of evil. It's demonic evil. If Satan had known what was going on, he'd never crucified Jesus, is what Paul says at one point. It's just evil unleashed, but evil defeated. It is structural evil. Crucifixion of Jesus is human power gone completely rogue in rebellion against God. It's religious evil at its worst. On the cross, it's personal evil. Even his closest friends either betray or deny him. And he hangs naked in absolute shame. And as Jesus takes every imaginable violation into himself, Blood is arrested. And the only thing that passes through him is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Evil is arrested in the person of Jesus Christ. And it goes no further. And this is the point that Tolkien was making in his Christian imagination when Gandalf stands on that super narrow bridge that doesn't have space for anyone else to pass. And it becomes this personal deciding moment. And he shouts at evil, You shall not pass. What's the point? Tolkien understood this that the danger with evil, and the rings included this, and I'm not going to get into the movie, but. Evil feeds off what it triggers in its victims. Evil feeds off what it triggers in its victims. And so grievance becomes bitterness. Rage becomes revenge and retaliation. And there's a chain reaction of successive, escalating, perpetuating chaos. As the victims themselves then take up the tools of evil and become the perpetrators. And so the only way to defeat evil is to refuse to use it when you respond. That is what Peter is teaching the slaves. And he's teaching the wise. He's not teaching passivity and mute acceptance. He's teaching a radical battle strategy for goodness. You see, everything in Jesus, especially from Gethsemane to Calvary, is to attract into himself, contain and arrest every kind of evil in his own body and say to it, you stop here, you stop now, you shall not pass. Evil can't win when evil can't pass. It feeds off what it triggers. Jesus gave it no food, no trigger. so he lived with his own chosen response and as the flood comes at him Peter sees that grace and truth and forgiveness are the only things that get past him guys this is radical (laughs) there are so many implications but maybe the first is this sorry I'm a bit behind on my slides you got that one we fight the battle is the battle who I am when I am in a contested situation who these slaves would be who these wives would be and whoever anyone else is who feels like an alien and a stranger in a place who how I fight is the fight will I take up evil or will I join Jesus in his battle strategy how I fight is my battle Does that make sense? You see, evil is not intimidated, threatened, or defeated by the powerful and the scary. Evil knows that game. It is crushed by those who, with Jesus, refuse evil means to fight evil in others. Evil has no power. This is the victory of the cross. This is the kingdom of God breaking out on the earth. And Peter's challenging us literally to do the same. Don't just see the cross as Jesus paying for your sin. You need to see the cross as Jesus suffering with those who suffer. And Jesus showing the way how that suffering actually breaks the power behind the brokenness. Yes, I do need to fully rely on Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin. He bore my sin in his body. He took it all. But he also said to evil, you shall not pass. Evil feeds off what it triggers in those it attacks. And so how, moments of what I face and this could be in my own home, it could be in my own marriage, it could be in my work relationship, it could be in a hundred different contexts and environments will I say to evil you stop yeah you stop now you shall not pass you see when I learn not to give in to the fear And then into the growing bitterness that fear will cultivate in me. When I believe in the God who is holding my life in those moments and I trust him, I can, as Jesus did, literally say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Whatever the outcome is, I'm trusting you. Like whatever the outcome is, I'm trusting you. But I'm not going to take up Evil tools, even if it seems like the most obvious way to address evil agents. Does that make sense? The cross is one of the most amazing things. So here's the thing. Finding hope in uncertain times does not start with all the dangers and dangerous people and the uncertainties being removed. Peter can't promise them that the emperors are going to be nice and everything. It starts with a choice. You shall not pass. Literally, I'm going to wage war to be good. And I've learned my battle strategy from Jesus. That's your Easter ongoing. Let's have the worship team. As we, are we doing, I won't be overwhelmed. Yeah, okay, so we pick this song God I look to you I won't be overwhelmed and this is not about denial and dishonesty this is about being ruthlessly honest about the stuff we face but finding the faith to direct my confidence not in the world's power not in the world's resources it's money but literally into the goodness and grace and forgiveness of jesus that is going to be my power i need it and i sure know the world around me the world around me needs it so i'm not going to be overwhelmed i'm going to press into you jesus i'm going to press into you let's stand together